This evening we have two readings. Um, the first is from Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 26. And our second reading is from 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12. So our first reading, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 26. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do with, to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set, set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, will, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commandments, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your corn, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do, no, do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. 
the Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of God, of their gods, you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction, regarded as vile and utterly detested, for it is set aside, set apart for destruction. Our second reading is 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. Eighty, thank you for reading. Good evening. If we not met, my name's Matt. And of the two readings, which would you rather look at? I think 1 Peter is more straightforward. Um, actually, I slightly torn up the term card, so we, we were going to look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 to 10, all in one hit tonight. Uh, not reading it all, but uh, the, the, the issue of the whole section, if, you, if you've been with us, is uh, it's an explanation, really, of the first commandment, that you have no other gods before the Lord. And if you were here last time, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then each of the chapters afterwards has one issue that might stop you doing that. So three times, this is tangential, by the way, but three times uh, you'll get uh, do not say in your heart um, in 7, 17, 8, 17, 9, 4. Uh, so tonight it's don't say in your heart. It doesn't literally get translated. It's don't say to yourself is our translation. But literally don't say to your heart, oh, they're too strong, chapter 7. We can't do anything about them. Uh, don't say in your heart, chapter 8, look at me. Look at what I've achieved. Uh, don't say in your heart, chapter 9, I'm more moral than you. Uh, so three things that they might say in their hearts. And we we're going to look at them all together. But then I thought, well, maybe we'll slow right down and uh, spend uh, a week on each, which, if nothing else, gives us a chance to spend a little bit of time in chapter 7, which I think is a deeply problematic chapter for us. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll look at it together. Thank you.
Uh, Great God and Father, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, And sometimes there is quite a gap between what we think and how you think. So, Father, as we turn to a passage such as this, which is deeply troublesome for us, would we understand it rightly? And then would you be at work by your Spirit to close the gap in our thinking and yours so that we think your thoughts after you, so we respond and live as a people who are like their God and their Father. Please be at work amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were paying attention when this was read, uh, it's awkward, Deuteronomy chapter 7. But in essence, here is a text that warns you and me about the danger of compromise, about the danger of moral and religious compromise. And that has been a problem for churches throughout history and throughout the centuries. Some obvious ones of the last century, um, in the 1930s and into 40s, both the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches overwhelmingly in Nazi Germany, working with the government there. Saying, yeah, yeah, we're with you. We'll support you uh, and we won't criticize you publicly. And from this side of history, you look back and think, well, how can that be? How can you work with an Adolf Hitler and a Nazi regime? But to them at the time, that seemed a sensible thing to do. There were some obvious reasons, I think. Uh, There were shared beliefs on some issues. So lots of people, Christians and Hitler, thought that the World War I settlement was unfair. And so it was good for Germany to flex her muscles a little bit. So there's shared beliefs on some things. Both were against communism. Both the churches and the Nazis. against. So, you know, we've got some stuff in common. There's some shared beliefs. Uh, Secondly, fear. Oh, if we speak out, we could be imprisoned. That's another issue. And thirdly, the, conce- the, the conception or perception that, uh, okay, we're not doing everything we should do, but we can still get on with some useful things. And so there's compromise. And from our viewpoint in history, looking back, terrible compromise. But then you might say the same of uh, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, Uh, cooperating with an apartheid regime for much the same reason, shared beliefs on some areas, Uh, fear, really, that they would lose their power if apartheid disappeared. Um, And, well, we can get on with lots of useful stuff. We can still preach the gospel, even though there's this big issue over here. And again, now we'd look back and say, "How how do we get into that position? That's extraordinary. This is often the way. It is clearly not my place to comment, but you might look across the other side of the Atlantic at some percentage of the Christian population in the States and say, well, their support for their clearly morally compromised president. I mean, who else? You leave aside his politics. But there's shared beliefs. They agree on some things. Fear. What, what happens if we, if we get a, a Democrat in the, in, in, in the White House? <gasps> um, fear. And, well, we can still get in lots of useful stuff. And so, okay, there's some things we don't like, but we'll compromise. Now, I'm not saying that's of the same order, but that sort of issue is always around. And Deuteronomy 7 would say, be very careful, because a mixture of those three affects Christians all the time. 
And so we're tempted to compromise all the time if you're a Christian here tonight. Look, before we get really get going, I want to pull out uh, somewhat the shocking issue of the text uh, and, and make some comments on that before, before we um, go on and, and work our way through it, which uh, I guess is the destruction of the tribes. So in particular, verse 2, when the Lord your God has delivered all these Zites over to you and you've defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Oh. And of course, it's the thing that some people get acutely upset about and say, genocide in the Bible. Well, it's not genocide. We'll come to that. But of course, these are the sort of issues that cause a great deal of heat. And, well, we need to understand it rightly. Let me just ask two questions, which is what is commanded and why is it commanded? Before we really get into the text. Now, now what is commanded here? Verse 2. When the Lord has handed all these tribes over to you, destroy them totally. Now, straight away, you see there's a footnote which says, well, what does that really mean? Uh, the Hebrew term refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by destroying them totally. But what does that word mean? It's the same word in verse 26. Destroy them totally. And yet, straight away, you get verse 3, don't marry them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. They'll turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Which hardly seems to contradict itself. Destroy them totally. Don't marry them. Well, how do you marry them if they're destroyed totally? Um, straight away, you're slightly wrong-footed. What, what, what actually is, is being asked for here? We saw last time in uh, chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. You may want to turn back. Uh, chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. Moses tells them, when the Lord your God your father brings you into the land, he saw your fathers, flourishing cities housed with all kinds of good things, wells and vineyards and olive groves. Well, enjoy them. So chapter 6, when you go in and capture the, these, these affluent cities, grab hold of everything and enjoy it. Chapter 7, when you go in and capture these cities, destroy them totally. Straight away, it's not straightforward what is being spoken of here. And then you see what happens actually in practice. So just take one example. In chapter 7, verse 1, one of these tribes, the Jebusites. We're not told a huge amount about them, but clearly they're not destroyed. When you get about a thousand, no, about 400 years later, a thousand BC, David goes and captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites. They've clearly not been destroyed. They're around 400 years later. And when he captures Jerusalem, does he destroy it and kill everyone? No. The Jebusites are absorbed into the tribe of Judah. They become a part of the people of God. Oh. So what does it mean, actually? Destroy them totally. Well, you get to the end of the chapter, and I think you get the emphasis that matters. So let me pick it up at verse 25. So beginning and end of the chapter, here, here's the key bookends. Verse 25 of chapter 7. The images of their gods you're to burn in the fire. Do not cover the silver and gold on them. Do not take it for yourselves, or you'll be ensnared by it. It is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you like it will be set apart for destruction. 
regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. So it seems the primary issue here is don't be ensnared by the other gods. Do what it takes to get rid of them so your heart is not pulled after false gods. Baal and Asherah, we'll come to them in a moment. But that you pursue your love for the Lord wholeheartedly. Or don't worship things that will compromise you. Get rid of them. So what is commanded? It's fundamentally the objects, that the things that will compromise your faith. Get rid of them. You, you read in the Old Testament, only four cities in the whole of Canaan are really destroyed, according to the rest of the biblical text that we're given. The rest, and you can read it elsewhere in Deuteronomy 20. Look, when you go up to a city, do offer them peace, and if they want to make peace, you make peace with them. So it's a nuanced picture here. Okay? But what is commanded, primarily don't worship things that will compromise you. Second question, why? Why is it commanded? Two main reasons. Uh, the first one is just purity. That's the sort of verse 25 and verse 26, and we'll dwell on that one in a moment. You've got to remain pure, holy to the Lord. The second one, and you, we have to accept this, the second reason this is commanded is judicial. So this is not genocide. It's not like Myanmar or Burma where uh, 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 the Buddhists are uh, or have been pushing out all the Rohingya uh, Muslims and uh, trying to slaughter them and, and to reclaim their homeland. It's not an act of genocide like that. That is self-interest. This is a judicial act. God says there are some people whose behavior is so abhorrent they must be punished with the ultimate sanction. And of course, the detail is that these Canaanite tribes were engaged in horrific practices. You don't just read it in the Old Testament. You can read it in secular sources that they were carrying out for child sacrifice. So archaeologists in numerous sites have dug up thousands of clay jars of burned ashes of children. Children burned as an offering to Baal and Asherah, the gods of Canaan, mentioned here. The worst place is, is Carthage, is the, the most evidence. There's a few uh, hundred years later after this. But still, there, the, the archaeologists will tell you the striking thing is you can correlate when the city of Carthage was in threat, uh, under threat of invasion or when there was famine, child sacrifice went through the roof. When there was prosperity, it dropped off. So in that culture, if you were anxious, you burned children to the gods. And the Lord says, when you go into the land, don't compromise with those people. Don't marry those people. In fact, you can wipe those people out as a judicial act. If you, were, if you in your house, in your flats, in your digs, knew that your neighbor sacrificed children, you would not do nothing. 
you would want justice. You would want it stopped. This is an extreme measure, a judicial sentence for an extreme crime. So destroy totally. Yes, renounce these things for your purity, Israel. And look, some places, and I think in the biblical text, four cities, some places, the the culture is so bad, so abhorrent, so wicked, destroy them. And we'll start from scratch there. Everything must go in those places. But it is a sentence passed by God the judge, and it's not repeated anywhere else in the Old Testament after these invasion of Canaan. You ask afterwards if you have further questions on that. But really, the text really primarily, and um, that's our issue, and of course it's a big one, I'm not denying that. But the point here, here is, don't serve other gods and don't fear other nations. Those are the two emphases that uh, the text give us. Uh, so verses 1 to 16, don't serve other gods because the Lord has chosen you. Verses 17 to 24, don't fear other ne- nations because the Lord is with you. Let's take them in turn then. First, don't serve other gods verses 1 to 16. I'll put a bit more detail down below on how the text breaks down, but let me pick it up at chapter 7, verse 3. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why not? Because they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Do you see, actually, the emphasis upon destroying the the sort of religious symbols. Uh, Baal and Asherah, that sort of Mr. and Mrs. God. Um, Baal had big stones, sort of phallic, meant to be, you know, you know what that means. Uh, Asherah is the female, and uh, you get sculptures carved of her. And you'd go to these places, and the point is, you'd say to Mr. and Mrs. God, we need rain to make the land fertile. Let us demonstrate for you fertility with a man and a woman. It goes a bit like this. I can leave the rest to your imagination. But uh, uh, that's what's going on at these sites. And they're all over the place. You want a Canaanite shrine, it's like a McDonald's. There's sort of 10 on every high street. You know, they're all over the place. They're, co- you know, so... It's not as if there's only one in Manchester and one in London. These places are everywhere. Get rid of them. Get rid of all of them. Because the temptation was that Israel will be compromised and serve these other gods. Don't be compromised. You might read verses 5, even 4 and 5, and think, well, it's all a bit strong. But of course, in in the New Testament, Jesus is treatment of things that cause us to sin, it's pretty similar. Or in fact, more extreme, you might say. So in Matthew 6, Jesus would say, well, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, I don't think he's literally making, he's not commanding that literally. He says, if your right right eye causes you to sin, gouge out your right eye. It's not as if the right one's any more simple than the left eye. He's just saying, hey, look, do what it takes. Do what it takes to stop your moral compromise that's causing you to sin. And it's the same issue here. 
destroy the false gods you may be tempted to follow. Don't marry people who don't follow the Lord. They'll pull you down. Why is this so important? Because Israel is the hope for the world. If you were here, do you remember in chapter 4, when Israel obeyed the Lord and was distinctive, the other nations are meant to look on and go, hey, that's interesting. You've you got a God who speaks to you. You've got a God who listens to you. You've got great laws. Hey, tell me more. Tell me more about your God. That's what's meant to happen. But if Israel's compromised, then no one's going to listen to them. And so the rest of the world won't hear about the Lord. So they have to remain holy and distinct in order for other people to benefit. Here was a poor illustration. Uh, I found myself watching the other night, uh, um, I Am Legend, which is not Will Smith's finest film. Uh, and um, have you seen it? It's a little bit. It's fine. It's fine. Um, no one's nodding. No one's seen it. It's, it's all right. You can watch it. Okay. Okay. Well done, Brian. You're with me. Uh, two. Any more? Any more? Any raises on two? Three. Good. Four. The back. Uh, five. Five, for the, five to the man in the blue shirt. Um, okay. So not many. I am legend. Will Smith. Uh, it's a sort of post-apocalyptic film. Um, there's been a virus. They were trying to uh, um, wipe out cancer. But this new drug... Uh, uh, um, it's killed 90% of the global population. Gone. Dead. Only 10% have survived, but of those, that 9% have been turned into zombies, and only 1% are immune. Will Smith is Dr. La La La. Um, not, not his name. Um, Fletcher. Will Smith is Dr. Fletcher. He's on the island of Manhattan, and he's the only human he knows. He's got his dog who keeps him sane. It's just him and his dog. Uh, 90% of the world's population is dead, but there are 9% zombies. The zombies want to bite him. They always do. Um, the zombies want to bite him and turn him into one of them. Meanwhile, he's working on a cure so that he can turn the zombies back into human beings. Are you, are you just not regretting you've missed this film? Um, so what does he do? Well, the zombies sort of break into his house and he shoots them. And he beats them up and he kills them. And you think, oh, it's a bit brutal. But the only hope for the human race is that he remains distinctive. The only hope for the human race is that he is not compromised. The only way anyone's going to be saved is if he remains holy. And so he will fend off a few, even kill a few who are going to compromise him in order to save humanity, which he does. Uh, I don't think that's a plot spoiler. Um, there is somewhat of that in the instructions here in Deuteronomy. Israel must remain wholly distinctive for the rest of the world's sake. If there's no Israel, no one else is going to tell the world about God. So they have to remain distinctive. And so the greatest challenge, this wickedness of the Canaanite culture, that's got to go. So there's a short-term aim, the destruction of these dangerous Canaanites who would turn Israel away from the Lord in order to pursue the long-term aim, their salvation, to tell them about him. 
Now, of course, what about us? If, if you're a Christian here tonight, there is, I hope you'll know, in the New Testament, no command to hurt anyone else. In fact, quite the opposite. Commands to love your enemies. But the significant overlap is this. Christians, you've got to remain distinctive in order to persuade a watching world that there is a God. That is the issue of the text. Uh, what are some of the details? Verses 6 to 11. Look, the Lord chose you. That's the point, but you can't be proud about that. Uh, verse 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples, Israel. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God. He keeps his covenant of love. Question. Why does God love Israel? Answer. Because he loves them. Yeah, but why does he love them? Because he loves them. But what have they done to make him love them? Nothing. He loves them because he loves them and he set his love upon them. The response is, be loyal to him. Love him in return. Verse 12 to 16, I think the question there is, well, who, who gives us blessings? Who, which God is it that has the power to give us all the things that we want? The crops, the livestock, the children. Is it Mr. Baal and Mrs. Asherah? No. Verse 12, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, the Lord your God will keep his covenant and love with you as he swore to your ancestors, will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. What will he give you? All sorts of good things. He is the source of, well, he'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, the corn, new wine, oil, calves, lambs, flocks. Verse 14, more children. Wonderful. The Lord is the one who gives you blessings. Stick with him. He'll provide all you need. But I hope you see the fundamental issue here is don't compromise by serving other gods. Don't do it. The world needs you, Christians, to be distinctive. And take that compromise seriously. So whatever is causing you to drift away from the Lord, cut it off completely. In Jesus' words, gouge it out. Cut it off. So I guess for you and for me afterwards, here's the question we need to ask. What is it that does most danger to our wholehearted love of the Lord? What is it? And then, what are we going to do about it? At home, we have a little problem with moths. They just love our house. And at some point, they've entered our house, and they decline to leave. Uh, and um, we're a little bit obsessive about this. So certainly in one uh, built-in wardrobe, 
uh, fairly recently. I, we, everything came out, and I sort of replastered it. I was quite pleased with that. Uh, any hole, any nook or cranny, get out. You were, you were not coming in here, everything. Uh, we now have moth traps, these sort of sticky things, everywhere. I'm afraid it's affected what we buy. No more wool garments, no more pure wool. Uh, nothing with the wool mark, not for us, because the moths, they love them. We are a little bit obsessive about getting rid of them. We want them gone. And we plan, and we think, and we invest money in the destruction of moths. And if one is seen, it doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m. in the morning, if the cry goes up, moth, I whip out my magazine. And they go. I'm pretty obsessive about cutting off them. And they're moths. They just nibble clothes. The Lord says, anything that is causing you to drift from me, to move away from me, to compromise your faith, cut it off. Gouge it out. Get rid of it. That's the main point. Don't serve other gods. The Lord has chosen you. But flowing from that briefly, uh, don't fear the other nations. Don't fear them, for the Lord is with you. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 17. You may say to yourselves, literally, you may say within your hearts, the hearts that are meant to be wholeheartedly uh, loving the Lord, you may say in your hearts, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? They are strong. Uh, We're told that um, in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. These are seven nations. They're larger than you. They're stronger than you. They're not being daft. They are quite strong. And so what's the issue? They're scared, verse 18. Do not be afraid. They're terrified, verse 21. Do not be terrified by them. So I guess, what does that mean for you and for me? When you look around the world today, don't be terrified by, well, political powers, maybe? More than the Lord? Maybe that's not such a big issue in the UK. Not in danger of being imprisoned in the UK. We might be sued. But I guess the point would be, or the the modern equivalent would be, um, don't let your heart fixate upon your boss more than the Lord. Don't fear him more than God. Don't let your heart fixate on the bully who mocks you when you speak about Jesus. Don't let your heart fixate on bills passing through Parliament and the difference they may or may not make. You can think about these things, but don't dwell on them in your heart. But remember the Lord. So two times they're told, he says, don't be afraid, and there's two different solutions. So verse 18, don't be afraid, but remember God's power. Verse 18, don't be afraid of them. Remember, remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm which the Lord brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Look, do you remember the Lord? He beat Egypt. He can do these nations. It's like saying to a football team, you've just beaten Real Madrid. You can beat Pimlico under 12 B team. You know, you've, you've beaten the great one, the Lord has. He'll, he'll help you defeat these smaller. Remember what he's done. Remember. Remember his power. And then uh, second thing, verse 21, don't be terrified by them, but know his presence. Verse 21, do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. He's awesome. 
So don't be afraid. Remember God's power. Remember he's with you, his presence. And so if you're here tonight as a Christian, you do remember God's power, don't you? As we said in that prayer, that collect, you do remember that he's rescued you. He's defeated sin and Satan. He's set you free from slavery. He's taken you out of the kingdom of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of Jesus. You do know his power. And you know that his presence is with you. Amongst us as a group of Christians, but amongst but dwelling within you personally, you can change. You can resist the things that you're tempted to compromise with. You can. God's power, his presence is within you. So stick with him. Be loyal to him. And so in the main issue, the text, verses 25 and 26, don't be ensnared. Don't serve the other gods, because the Lord has chosen you. Don't fear other nations. The Lord is with you. And so make sure we understand it right. Let's briefly turn back to uh, uh, 1 Peter 2, where we get very similar language uh, used in the New Testament. It's on page 1218, 1 Peter 2. where this language of being chosen, the language of being God's treasured possession, we get it again. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Uh, You Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special or treasured possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're a Christian here tonight, question, why does God love you? Answer, because he loves you. Yeah, but what have I done that makes him love me? Nothing. He loves you because he chose to set his love upon you. And you are his treasured possession. So live differently. Do you have a treasured possession? One or two might have a thing. Um, Normally, if we have a thing that's treasured, it's because it has a memory. I I, I guess my father's watch, I treasure. Uh, Now he's gone, in particular, he gave it to me not long before he died. I treasure that. It's a thing, only because it reminds me of a person. God says, you're my treasured possession. I remember a few years ago going on holiday to, uh, to France uh, with some friends and other family. And, uh, you know, one of those in classic drive, kids in the car, asleep. And uh, uh, their, their daughter at the time was about three years old. And uh, we, uh, we arrived where we were staying, driven through the night, uh, arrived where we were staying and unpacking everything. And uh, the question went up, where's rabbit? For rabbit was Lucy's treasured possession. She did not function without rabbit. And the mum and dad, did you pack rabbit? Did you pack rabbit? And they freaked out as they thought she never sleeps without rabbit. She won't eat anything unless rabbit is at the table next to her. Rabbit is, bizarrely, everything to her. Uh, Freak out, freak out, freak out. Um, Went to local town. Any children's toy shops nearby or or anywhere I might buy a stuffed toy and and the dad was directed uh, several hours later. 
unbelievable. A toy shop in France that sold precisely the same rabbit. <laughs> it was a moment of praise the Lord. And he came back in the, you know, wonder dad, really, because he'd fixed this problem. Wonder dad walked back in and said, oh, I found rabbit. And he said, oh, mm, this is not rabbit. Smells different. Looks different. Not rabbit. It's not my rabbit. Uh, and she had a very distressed week away. Uh, and when we got back to the UK, first thing she did, of course, upon entering the house, was run in, find rabbit, and lock herself in her room for days. Um, well, hours. With, uh, with rabbit. Because that was her treasured possession. And we couldn't fob her off with an identical one. God says to the believer, you are my treasured possession. I don't want any other. It's you. I've chosen you. Without you, I am grieved. It is you I have chosen to place my love upon. You're my treasured possession, says the Lord, and I've chosen you for holiness. And so uh, 2 Peter, sorry, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in this world to abstain from simple desires which wage war against your soul, which will pull your heart away from me. Live such good lives amongst the pagans. That's just simply those who are not Christians. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, They'll see that you live differently. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I read while I was away uh, recently uh, about cycling and uh, doping scandals in cycling. I read about uh, one incident and a man called Christophe Basson. Uh, Tour de France, 1998. Not all would remember that, I know. Uh, but uh, the big stink. It was, one of the, it was the first of the big stinks, really. Um, when uh, uh, Team Festina, uh, their support car, I mean, it was pretty unsubtle, opened the boot, drugs, uh, on a massive scale. And it was very obvious from management down, the whole team had been taking drugs, a wholly coordinated effort, apart from one of the cyclists, a man called Christophe Basson. He hadn't taken any drugs. He'd resisted the social pressure, even though the rest of the team shunned him. He had to eat his meals separately from them. He didn't share in prize money when they won. He just saw out his contract with the team because he thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, eventually, all this, all this came out, and he emerged as the sort of white knight in it all. And of course, everyone asked him the question, well, how did you resist? He said, well, I don't think it was particularly courageous of me to resist drugs pressure. I was lucky. I had a balanced upbringing. I had lots of love in my life. I had no void which made me want to dope or need to do so to win the approval of others. Refusing drugs was quite possible for me because I'd been loved as a child. Perhaps not for the others. I don't know about his Freudian analysis. But certainly for him, he says, well, it wasn't that impressive for me to say no. I didn't need to. I felt secure in the love my family have for me. So I could say, no, I won't conform. I won't take drugs with the others. With the others. And the Christian is one who can say, 
I don't need to conform to social pressures around me. Because I'm deeply loved by God. I'm his treasured possession that he sent his son to die for. I have lots of love in my life. So I can live differently. Praying that others will look on and say, why do you do that? What is it about your God that means that you don't live the same as everyone else? Deuteronomy 7 is a strong word that says, don't say in your heart, I can't resist temptation. Don't say in your heart, I'll I'll never stand up. Don't say that in your heart. Because God's presence in the life of a Christian believer, he dwells in you individually by his spirit in a way no one in Israel had. And God's love has been demonstrated for you by Jesus upon the cross in a way that no Israelite ever knew. So don't say that in your heart that you have to conform. You don't. You are God's treasured possession. He loves you. And he's chosen you to live distinctively. So whatever is causing you to drift, if there's something you know that is leading you to compromise, cut it out. Let's pray together. Lord, here is a wonderful word of delight for us and a strong warning. Father, for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are your treasured possession. And you don't want anything else. Father, we're your treasured possession. And you've chosen us for holiness so that others can see how good it is to love Jesus. And hopefully want to ask us more. And so, Father, if there are things that we know are causing us to compromise, that are leading our hearts away from you, would we cut them out? Would we destroy them? For the honor of your name, for the good of a world that needs to know how wonderful you are. Help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.